Well, we are a little more than halfway through the book of Luke now. And you'll see a shift in the way Jesus is preaching and teaching. Because he never intended to just draw a big crowd or create some kind of celebrity status that allowed masses of people to just loosely associate with him while they defined for him what his mission and message should be all about. Oh, I hope you realize, you realize this? People will flock to anyone they can define and use for their own purposes. We've always been drawn to a Messiah or a revolutionary who will get on board with our agenda and help us accomplish what we want to see done with our lives and in our world. But Jesus would not do it. And so at this point in his ministry, we're way along now. At this point in his ministry, he's not looking to increase his fan base or build further popularity. Actually, instead, what you're going to see over and over and over from now to the end of the book of Luke is how often he goes out of his way to offend people by drawing a line in the sand, by poking, prodding, sifting, and trying to shake them loose from what they already think and want him to affirm. You realize that's how we start. No one's a blank slate. Human beings know what they think, know what they believe, and are looking for a leader who will affirm it and help them get it done. Even as a counselor, I love counseling. But you guys, one of the things I bump into repeatedly, and I've done it 30 years now, is people come in hurting And they don't say it out loud, but what they actually want is, can you help me keep doing exactly what I'm doing and get better results? They don't say that in their paperwork. But as you try to work with them and you see the resistance, it's like, oh, I didn't want to change anything. I know what I think. I know what I believe. I know what I want to do. I thought you could help me get better results. That's the human heart of all of us. Not picking on anyone in particular. That's how we are wired. So I don't know where people got this notion that Jesus was so popular. He was not. If you read the Gospels, you'll see the longer he did ministry, the smaller the crowd got. They just continued to turn and follow him no more. They were attracted to power, but it was power they wanted to use for their own purposes. And as he continued to make it absolutely clear, I'm not here to be used by you or help you accomplish what you already think. Crowds just thinned out readily. That's where we are now. You're going to see it more and more and more. And so what you're going to see today is that his message last week, if you weren't here last week, go back and read the passage and listen to the sermon. What you're going to see today is that his sermon last week in verses 22 to 30, which was a sifting, shaking kind of sermon, rattled And even offended some of the people in the crowd because it didn't match what they already think. And guess what? It didn't make them feel good about themselves. You know, our culture is like, don't tell me anything that doesn't make me feel good about myself. Jesus repeatedly said things that would not make you feel good about yourself. And so they were rattled and offended. So what you're going to see is our passage today is a reaction to his sermon last week. Turn with me to Luke chapter 13. And you follow along as I begin reading in verse 31. Luke chapter 13, verse 31. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and I perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day, I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you would not. Some of your translations say you would not have it. You weren't willing. You would not. Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name 
of the Lord. So what does Jesus want to clarify? See, at this point in his ministry, he's all about clarifying. He doesn't want there to be confusion. He understands there's massive confusion about him. He's wanting to clarify. What does Jesus want to clarify for us in this passage? Here's the first thing. Number one, hope you realize the message of Jesus has never been good news to proud and powerful people. Whether you're proud and powerful in a secular marketplace authority kind of way, or whether you're proud and powerful in a religious, spiritual, I'm not that bad kind of way, his messages were not good news for you. Look at what I'm talking about in verse 31. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Now, I want you to get the context right here, because this verse, like I said, is teeing it up that everything that's going to happen next is a reaction to what he just preached in verses 22 to 30. Now, who is it? So keep in mind context. Who is it that he's speaking to? Heinous, awful, wild, sinful people. Who are the Pharisees? Righteous, religious, morally outward, doing all the right things, checking off the boxes. This is who he's talking to. And this is really who he was talking to last week in that sermon. Look at it again. Beginning of verse 31. At that very hour. What hour? The hour he just finished a sermon in verses 22 to 30, where he was preaching about salvation being a struggle that demands urgency. It demands urgency. You're going to have to wrestle with this. And salvation demands a relationship with me personally, not just religion externally, tipping your hat to some boxes. Oh, you're going to have, you're going to, have to wrestle with this and you're going to have to know me personally. And oh, by the way, this salvation has some eternal consequences. He talked about punishment last week. So he's saying the stakes are high. Don't just assume you're in and you're okay, because you just might not be. You realize that's the same scary thing today? Did you know that? One of the biggest shocks in heaven is not going to be, there's going to be glorious things like, oh my goodness, there is the Savior. Oh my goodness, there is a new heaven and earth. Oh my goodness, no sin, no sickness. Here's another thing that we'll experience. Who's there and who's not? You realize we love to go through life putting people in category. Well, you won't be there. (laughs) And they are so in. We're gonna be shocked by who's there and who's not there. You realize you can be a pastor and preach solid biblical doctrinal sermons and still go to hell? You realize you can lead a small group and go to hell? You can do counseling and go to hell? It's scary the capacity of the human heart to do the right outward things, but to still be lost because you've never come to a point where you've seen yourself as a desperate sinner in need of a savior. This is not natural. That's why I said strive, fight, battle. He wasn't saying try to earn your way into heaven. He's saying you're going to have to put to death your own thought about you. Our first thought about ourselves is what? I'm terrible. Now, some of you, if you're sitting there and you say, yes, you're the exception. Most human beings think, I'm not that bad. Like, don't talk to me about it being a horrible, horrible sinner in need of amazing grace. I'm a sinner, little s, that needs some grace. You can drop amazing. I need a booster shot at most. That's the natural human thought. I'm not that bad. I'm not that bad. I'm not that bad. Why? Because we're looking around at other people that we think are super bad. Oh, this is not easy for the human heart. And so Jesus, out of compassion, comes against it regularly and is actually trying to shake people up and poke and prod and unsettle them. Here's Here's what I want you to realize. If you read the Gospels, all four of them, and you put together all his sermons, you will see that there's two themes and you don't get to just pick which sermons you like. You'll say, well, that was kind of confusing and upsetting. I like his come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. It is wonderful and I say it all the time. But that sermon he preached last week is not the only one like that. So there's two themes that Jesus was regularly trying to address because there's two groups of people he knows are regularly listening. Jesus in his preaching came to afflict the comfortable and to comfort the afflicted. 
What I mean by that is those people who are already comfortable in their own system and their own self-righteousness thinking I'm not that bad. His intent is to upset you, rattle you, afflict you, disturb you, lest you land in hell because you've never truly thought you're a great sinner in need of a great savior. And then those people that are totally broken, totally ostracized, totally been convinced by others and the world and even the church sometimes, There's no place for you in the kingdom. You'll never get in because he came to comfort them. You don't get to pick and choose. Take all of his sermons. There's a reason he preaches the way he preaches because he knows there's different hearers in the crowd. You can, you can end up in hell because you chase your sin so hard and you refuse to repent, but you can end up in hell because you hold on to your own self-righteousness so tenaciously. Do you know what one of the hardest things is to repent of? It's not repent of sexual immorality. It's repenting of your own self-righteousness. Oh. Either one of these things can land you in hell, my friend, and Jesus doesn't want to see it happen to you. That's why he's preaching the way he is. So don't make a mistake right here. The Pharisees aren't doing him a favor. They're not helping him out right here. They're not warning him because they want to help him. They are ticked off and they want to intimidate him, silence him, and get him to move on out of their area. This region where he is right now is Perea and they own it. Remember I've told you there's synagogues all over. There's one temple in Jerusalem, there's synagogue. So these are the leaders of that region and basically they're saying, we've had it with you and your radical message. You are messing everything up because we are the power brokers here. We are the religious power brokers. Everything's been working fine till you got here. You have introduced confusion. You have turned everything upside down. You have messed up our religious world and we need you to move on. Move on, move on. This was all working fine without you. Listen to me. Jesus has always been a threat to proud and powerful people who are already settled and secure in their own system, believing that their own spiritual resources are enough, adequate. I might need a little help. I might need encouragement, but I'm not a desperate sinner in need of a savior. Why do you keep talking that way? So you say, Brad, who was excited about Jesus and this message of hope? Glad you asked. I hope you've noticed, you guys, you realize the Bible is limited in what it chose to tell us. You realize every person that Jesus encountered is not recorded for us. You realize how many sermons he gave that were not recorded. God by his spirit chose what he was gonna give us. Think about how often it's a woman caught in adultery. It's a woman at the well that's had five husbands. Oh, by the way, the man you're living with now, he's not your husband. She's like, oh, awkward conversation. I talk to people on planes and the gym. I'm not able to do that. I'm like, well, you know, the guy you're living with. But Jesus did it. And then he gave them hope. The woman who comes in with the ointment breaks it and spills it on his feet. And it says she was a known sinner. Not like anyone else isn't. But that, that in their mind, she was a notorious sinner. She fits the category, not me. He does this over. Rahab. The prostitute back in the Old Testament that rescued the spies. It's no accident, you guys, that she's listed in the genealogy in Matthew 1 as one of the people through whom the Messiah came. Through her. Why does God do this kind of stuff? To shake us and show us his desire is to save people who are convinced they're sinners. And until you think you're a big sinner, the gospel doesn't do anything for you. It's scary. Until you get yourself in that category with the woman caught in adultery, with the woman at the well, with the woman who was a sinner, with Rahab the prostitute, you won't even be interested in this remedy. You will just tweak it a little bit and do your religious thing. Who was interested? Tax collectors. And I know today, if you work for the IRS, don't be offended. But back then, they were right over there with prostitutes. You think you don't like doing your taxes. They really hated it. Because, here's why, in that day, your taxes were going to Rome. 
right? What if Russia came over, attacked us, ruled us, and soldiers were all over our land, and when you paid taxes, you paid it to Russia? That's what was going on. And then what if some Americans decided to work in the tax agency and collect the taxes for Russia? And what if the system didn't have a chart that said, if you make this, you pay this. It was whatever the tax collector wanted to get from you. Give Rome what they want from him, but he keeps the rest. You'd hate them. They're traitors. That was tax collectors, which we're going to see when we get to it in Luke. He's going to look up in a tree and say to Zacchaeus, a tax collector, come down today. I'm going to your house for a meal. The whole crowd was like, what? Continually, the scriptures show us who Jesus came for. Sinners who knew they were sinners. And it shows us who was drawn to Jesus. It says he ate with sinners and tax collectors. He was regularly being criticized by the religious power brokers. Don't you realize who you're eating with? You're eating with sinners. He's like, yeah, I came for sinners. Not those that already think they're pretty good. Is that a problem that's gone away? It's still a huge problem. Jesus came to save lost sinners. So until you have yourself tucked into that category, along with whoever else is is you think that does fit that category, you just might not be born again. He's like, oh, don't just assume you're in and you're okay because you just might not be. Wrestle with this. The people that were excited were the outcasts, the outsiders, those that have been told by their culture and their world, you'll never get in. There's no place for you in the kingdom because there's no place for people like you in the kingdom. But the self-righteous power brokers, oh, they were continually offended by him and looking for ways to shut him down. You do realize, ultimately, if you want to look at who, who human-wise put Jesus on the cross, we know God the Father did it, ultimately, sovereign. But the hands, you guys, it wasn't the Romans, the religious power brokers of the day worked the system to get him killed because they so hated him. That's how bad the human heart hates this message. If you don't think you're a sinner, we must not just silence him, kill him. The further along we go, you'll see. And they plotted how they might kill him. And they discussed how they might kill him. And they plotted how they might kill him. We're shutting you down. We don't want to hear this anymore. We already know what we think. And believe, and you're not saying what we have already taught and believed. And here's what you'll see the more they resist, the more they resist, the more offensive and direct Jesus became with them. To the point that you'll see him saying in Matthew 21 it's like, How, how can I say this to you? How can I say this to you? And finally, he says, You know what? I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom before you. He was talking to those that don't think they're so bad. And what he means is not, don't, don't hear what he's not saying. So I should go sleep around so I could earn myself a place in heaven. No, what he's saying is tax collectors and prostitutes, when they hear the gospel, they're like, what? There's hope. They know they're a sinner. They own it. They don't think they bring anything to the table. And so when they hear about a savior who does it all, who keeps the law and offers grace and mercy, they're like, yes, didn't know that existed. That's not what we've been hearing. Yes, they're going into the kingdom, but so could you. He's not saying they couldn't get in. He just just says they're getting in ahead of you right now they're getting in now while you keep resisting and saying wait a minute wait a minute this doesn't match what we've already thought what we've already taught does that make sense is it happening today yes i've said it before you guys i think one of the biggest mission fields that exists today i hope this doesn't offend you i still pray for you as your pastor that everyone here is truly born again and that you wouldn't spend a decade or so, or so under the good preaching and still be lost. Could it happen? Could you sit under good preaching and still be lost? That was weak. Make sure it's not you. Don't just assume you're in. You just might not be. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying everybody go home now worried and concerned. But 
you realize some people ought to be concerned. And that's why I thump on this. We need some mamas to stop saying to the kids, well, we know you're saved. We know you're saved. That's one thing we know. We know you're saved. Stop it, mama. One of the best things that maybe could happen is for a, a young man or woman to start thinking, do I really know the Lord? I know I grew up in church. I knew I did the whole youth group thing, camp thing. I know I, quote, prayed the prayer, but I don't have any desire for the things of God. I don't care about the word of God. I don't care about the kingdom of God. I don't care about what Jesus says. One of the best things that could happen to them is for them to examine themselves and say, do I actually know him? Am I in a relationship with him? Jesus came to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. Two kinds of messages he brings regularly. And so they've had it. They don't want to hear this anymore. I'm not asking I'm not asking if you're doing some religious stuff, leading a group, counseling. I'm not asking if you're trying to make a difference in this world. I hope you are. I'm asking you, have you come to the place yet in your life where you've humbled yourself and said, oh God, apart from him, Jesus, I'll never get in. Save me on the basis of Jesus and Jesus alone. I bring nothing but my sin to the table. Have you come to that point in your life? But let me show you a second thing that stands out in this passage is so encouraging today. Number two, the mission of Jesus has never been threatened by anything in history, including wicked civil authorities. You realize politicians, governments, nations cannot stop what God is doing in our world. We've had wicked rulers before you guys. Just read the Gospels. At every point along the way, Jesus' life was threatened, but it was never taken until he was ready. It's unstoppable. It's unstoppable. It's unstoppable. Look at verse 32 again. And he said to them, yeah? When they said, you know, Herod wants to kill you. Go and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day, I finish my course. You need to understand the reason they're throwing Herod up in his face is because this was a wicked, wicked man with a terrifying reputation for atrocities. Everyone knew it. It was common knowledge what he would do. Atrocities, get this, both outside of his home and inside of his home. If he thought you were a threat to his throne, he would kill you. Sons. He killed some of his own sons, daughters, wives. It was nothing special to be a part of his family. You, you, were, you had no more security than any. He was paranoid and he was a murderous maniac of a leader. And if he thought you were a threat to his throne, he would have you killed. It didn't matter what your last name was. And oh, by the way, he comes by this honestly because he was raised by a father like this. You realize this in Luke 13, this is Herod Antipas. His father, Herod the Great, we had back when Jesus was born, 31 years earlier, Herod the Great, imagine how wicked this is, when he heard from the wise men that there was a baby going to be born that would be, say the word, king. Can you imagine issuing an edict that says, Soldiers, go to Bethlehem and kill every baby boy two years old and under just to be safe. That's what this man did, Herod the Great. Herod Antipas grew up in that home seeing all that. So when they threw the name of Herod up in his face, they meant to intimidate him, silence him, cause him to run. But he was un phased, unfazed, and actually gives them a message, actually boldly says back to them, yeah, Herod wants to kill me? Go tell him two things. Tell him he's nothing but a fox. We'll get to that in a minute if you think that's lame. Yeah, I use that in the cafeteria all the time. Yeah, well, uh, you're a fox. I'll help you here in a minute understand why that was worse than you think. (laughs) And, And Jesus is the son of God, so he's very nice with things he says, even when he's wanting to hurt somebody. Yeah, tell him he's a fox. And secondly, Just go ahead and give him my itinerary. Tell him where he can find me because I'm going to be doing this. I'm going to keep doing what I've been doing until I finish what I came to do. And he chose his animal carefully when he said, 
tell that fox. Because in ancient times, which you need to realize, unlike today, in ancient times, dogs were considered the worst. So you'll see the mention of a dog often. Foxes were considered nothing but a nuisance, a petty, insignificant creature that had no power of its own, but just slunk around in the shadows, nipping at the heels of those who really do have power and authority. And so he was expressing contempt, public contempt for Herod. Because he's saying, I know you tremble at him, what you know he can do, how he could wreak havoc on you, turn your worlds upside down. But Herod has no, absolutely no power to destroy, deter, or alter what I came to do. In fact, he goes on to say, if you're wondering what's up with, you know, no prophets ever perished outside of Jerusalem. He's basically saying, and by the way, I will decide when and where I die. It will not be in Perea and it will not be at the hands of Herod. I am going to die in Jerusalem during the Passover. You realize when you read your gospels, that's no accident that Jesus was crucified during the Passover in Jerusalem. All of that is meaningful. All of that is intentional. Remember, synagogues are all over where they teach. Only in Jerusalem were sacrifices offered. Jerusalem is where you came for Yom Kippur and to make your sacrifices of lambs and sheep and bull and heifers and sweet-smelling incense. And all that happened in Jerusalem. And that's where they came to observe the Passover that remembered how God in the book of Exodus, back when Israel were captive slaves passed over all the Jews who put the blood of a lamb on their doorposts while every other Egyptian home saw the death of their firstborn. Oh yeah, you've been practicing this and remembering this for years, but that blood of the lamb could never truly atone, could never truly cleanse, could never truly forgive. I am the lamb of God, the all-sufficient, never needs to be repeated sacrifice. I will die in payment for sin so that it never needs to be done again. I'm going to die in Jerusalem. I'm going to die during the Passover. And until then, no human being, no civil authority, no religious power brokers can stop me. He knew who he was and what he had come to do. So look at the end of verse 32, because he's alluding to the culmination of all he came to do when he says in verse 32, And the third day I finish my course. The NIV says I reach my goal. The new living says I accomplish my purpose. What purpose? He did not come to unstop deaf ears. He did not come to open blind eyes. He did not come to break a few loaves and fish and feed people for a day and they'll need food again the next day. All that is earthly. All that is temporary. He came to solve our biggest problem, the sin problem that separates us from a holy God and would land us in an eternal hell. He's like, that's what I came to do. And on the third day, I'm going to accomplish that. He's alluding to rising from the dead. Three days after he hung on the cross in payment for our sins. From the moment he burst into our world. From his first cry as a baby in the cradle. He knew who he was and what he'd come to do. Those Hollywood depictions that like to show him shuffling around like a deranged, confused guru that didn't know who he was. You don't see that in the scriptures. Continually, he knew who he was and what he'd come to do. Who, and he was on a timetable. He was on a timetable. He knew who he was and what he'd come to do. The gospel of John actually brings out the awareness of this timetable and this focus better than any other gospels. Have you ever noticed the number of times John will say, we refer to, have Jesus talk about my hour? What hour? My hour, my hour. This final culmination, that final moment on the cross and resurrection in payment for sins, that hour. That's why he says in John 7, so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. 
John 8, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. And you realize in the gospel of John, from John 13 to 17, that all happens in one short span of a few days with his disciples where he's in the upper room celebrating the Passover and teaching them for a final time before he goes out to the garden to cry out to God the Father, if there's any other way, if there's any other way, let this cup, the hour and the cup are both related. It's about that time on the cross where the wrath of holy God would be poured out on his son instead of us. Our sins would be placed on him as if they were his, but he had none of his own. And God's wrath would be poured out on him and completely satisfied so that anyone, regardless of their life and anything they've done, good or bad, who puts their faith in Jesus can be clean, forgiven, made right, given a robe of righteousness, adopted into God's family as a son or daughter, given an inheritance that cannot be shaken or taken. Wow. All based on faith. And you're saved by grace alone, through faith in Christ, plus, and see, that nothing includes your self-righteousness. Your pride, your, yeah, but, 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 I'm not that bad. Nothing, nothing. Oh, the mission of Jesus was to glorify his father. That's why he says in John 13, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus, he's in the upper room now with his disciples, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Talking about the cross. Healing blind eyes, straightening crooked limbs. That was driven by love, yes, but there's no greater love than that someone would give their life for another. For God so loved the world that he gave. His only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish. He loved them to the, he didn't draw back from the cross. Yes, he pleaded with God one last time because he was fully human, you guys. Fully human and fully God. And his fully human side was like, oh, do not want to experience this. God, is there any other way? But then thank you, Jesus, that his prayer said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours. And he went. He went. In John 17, he says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. He was on a mission to glorify his father by dying on the cross in payment for our sins so that people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation, you realize the mission is not in jeopardy, you guys. Never mind what country is communist. Never mind laws they can pass. Never mind pandemics. Never mind anything that we might think limits the spread of the gospel. It cannot be stopped. Revelation 7 and 9 says there will be people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation standing before the throne and the lamb praising him for salvation. God is going to do what God is going to do. It's unstoppable. Unstoppable. In fact, that Greek word for finish right there in verse 32 where he says in the third day I finish my course It's the same word that he cries out from the cross in John 19. It's tetelestai. And it was a word that they stamped on a certificate of indebtedness. If you were in debt to someone, there was a certificate of debt. And when you'd finally made payment as proof of it, they would stamp on that certificate. Tetelestai, paid in full. You owe nothing. Done. That's what he's saying on the cross. It's been paid in full. Anyone now who puts their trust, faith in me can be forgiven, made right, redeemed, ransomed, adopted. It is finished. 
at that point, and that point alone, could his life be taken from him. He wasn't going to be pushed off a cliff. He wasn't going to be stoned. He wasn't going to be killed by Herod. It is finished. At that point, his life could be taken. And oh, by the way, even then, it was not taken from him. He gave it freely. That's why he says in John chapter 10, John chapter 10, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Oh, I love this next part. No one, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. And he did three days later. They didn't have to move the stone for him to get out. They moved the stone for women to get in and see the empty tomb. I have the power and authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up. But let me show you something else that stands out in our passage. Number three, the mercy of Jesus has always been constant in the face of rejection and hostility. You guys, the hostility towards Jesus, the exclusivity of Jesus and this message of Jesus is not a new thing. They didn't like it then. They don't like it now. As long as we're willing to say, oh, yes, yes, Jesus is just one of many ways you could come to God. They'll say, fine. Jesus wasn't saying he's one of many ways. He said, I am what way? I am the way. What truth? The truth. The life. How many people get to the Father except through him? No one comes to the Father but by me. That wasn't popular then. It's not popular now, but it is such good news. You realize God the Father didn't have to make any way. He doesn't owe us any way. You realize? When you say, well, why doesn't God offer many ways? Oh, shut up. He didn't have to. He could have let us all go to hell. We are the rebels. We are the sinners. And he took on flesh and came into our world to make a way. And it was costly, costly. Oh, the mercy of Jesus has been constant in the face of this rejection. Verse 34 shows us the tender and broken heart of Jesus despite the rejection. Look at it again. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. When he mentions Jerusalem in the prior verse, it just caused him to emote. He actually has feelings. He is a compassionate, weeping, broken-hearted Savior. He's like, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often? What he means by that is, this is the heart I've carried around with me continually. It's just right there. How often I would have gathered you under my arms like a hen gathers her brood, but you would not. His heart was broken and grieved when he saw yet again their hard-heartedness and rebellion. This was not an expression of anger. It was a sob of anguish. And it's not the first time we've seen it. We've already seen this, right? Where I've, I've shown you in another passage where the word compassion means to be moved, deeply moved, and to feel for someone. And it's not the last time we'll see it. We'll see it again in Luke 19. Why did Jesus do this so often? Why would he weep? and be moved with compassion for sinners who reject him. I'll tell you why. Because Jesus didn't come to give us advice. He came to give us himself. And he came with a heart wide open. Wide open. Wide open. Whenever you truly love, I hope you realize the definition of biblical love is giving. Sacrificially deeply expecting nothing in return. Guess what? You can get hurt when you love that way. Jesus was at risk and continually, it didn't matter, he didn't draw back. He gave, he gave. His heart was wide open, compassionate, loving, brokenhearted. And again, I say this a lot, but I feel like I need to because the media and culture say the wrong thing so much. This is what puts Christianity in a category unto itself. 
No other religion has God coming down to us with a broken, compassionate, loving heart doing for us what we could never do for every other religion you guys points the way and seeks to reorient you and tell you what to do it's very informational every other religion has a lot of information you could look at and learn only christianity is personal and costly personal took on flesh set aside his rights and privileges of heaven took on flesh and stooped and stepped into our world of mess. The same Jesus, you guys, he hasn't changed until he returns. This is his heart. The same Jesus that would have gathered Jerusalem under his arms calls out to you today, today, today. Doesn't matter who you are doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter what's been done to you. He sees you. He loves you. And he longs to bring you into his arms. I'm not talking about religion, you guys. Right now, I want you to think, do you know what it is to be tucked into the arms of a compassionate, loving, personal savior? There's your security. Not a list of things you hope you're doing well enough. I'm in the arms of a savior. I can't, and he said, who he has, no one can snatch them out of his hand. Are you tucked into the arms of a savior who's done for you what you could never do for yourself? Do you know him? Do you love him? Do you delight in him? Do you rest in him? Do you worship him? Do you listen to him? Do you follow him? That's what it means to be a Christian. No, we're not perfect. I still sin. But oh my goodness, it's radically different what you think every day when you have been born again and are in the arms of a savior and you know he did for you what you could never do. He kept the law. He satisfied God and it does not change. It cannot be taken from you. But it starts with seeing yourself in the same category with prostitutes, tax collectors, the sexually immoral and those people that our world or you would label big time sinner. Do you have yourself in the same category? That's the beginning point of experiencing a savior. He came to seek and save that which was lost, so lost. Not, he'd say, I did not come to try to help out those that already think they're righteous. Get over yourself. Get over yourself. What do you have today? Religion or a relationship? And have you come to the point where you've humbled yourself? Or are you still busy putting on display what you think sets you apart and gets you in ahead of so many other bad people? Do you know him? Do you know him? Because... This passage ends on a very sober note. I don't want you to miss this. Right now today, he would love to gather you into his arms like a mother hen with her brood. But this invitation will end. There's an expiration on this. When he returns, there will not be rejection forever, you guys. That's my final point. His rejection will be shattered forever by his glorious Return. I don't want you to miss the sobering way he ends this conversation with these religious power brokers, with these self-righteous people. Look at verse 35. Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, he's saying, you think your spiritual house is so in order. And you think you're so secure in your position and have all the resources you need spiritually to be right with God. But when you reject me, you are forsaken, abandoned, and there's no hope for you because there's no hope apart from me. And so he goes on to remind them that you can reject him now. Maybe you're here today and you're like, yeah, 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 I don't think Jesus is actually the son of God. Good teacher and all that. My friend, you can reject him now but you will not reject him forever. Do you realize that? 
This is what he's talking about in verse 35. He says, basically he's saying to them, okay, you don't want to hear from me anymore. You don't want to see me anymore. Fine. But oh, you will see me again in a way I so wish you would see me now. And you will say what is true about me, but it will be too late. Some commentaries think that this verse is referring to in a few months when he enters Jerusalem, his triumphal entry, and the crowds line the street and they do wave palm branches and they shout this very thing. That's actually a quote from Psalm 118. So the Jews knew Psalm 118 is talking about that one that's going to come, that Messiah, that one we've been waiting for. So they shout it, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I don't think he's talking about what's about to happen in a few months. Because guess what? He's looking at these self-righteous religious people. And if you read what's coming in a few months, they're the same ones in the crowd on that day that yell out, teacher, do you not hear what your disciples are saying? Tell them to stop. And it says they were indignant that he wouldn't stop them. He said, no, the rocks will cry out. If they don't say it, the rocks, why? Because it's true. It's true, but they still wouldn't believe it. So he's talking about his second coming, you guys. And I hope you realize every single person alive and that's ever lived on that day will say Jesus is Lord. Did you know that? You're gonna say Jesus is Lord. It's just a question of when, now or on that day. And on that day, it won't change your eternal destiny at all. But you will say it because it's true. It's true. There's a day coming when those outside of the kingdom, don't we feel it today? Like, oh man, there's such a difference between those in the kingdom and out. There's such radically different thinking and values. I know. But there's a day coming when he splits the sky from east to west and the trumpet sounds and every single human being outside and inside the kingdom will be saying the same thing. Jesus Christ is Lord. Because it will be true for every human being. It just won't change the eternal destiny of some Because the Bible doesn't teach universalism. Everybody isn't going to be ultimately saved. He's referring to the same thing Paul's talking about, you guys, in Philippians 2. When he says in Philippians chapter 2, therefore, God. Now, whenever there's a therefore, you need to know what just happened. Well, he just got done talking about Jesus humbled himself, took on flesh, was obedient even to the point of death on the cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is about every name so that the name of Jesus, how many knees? Say louder. Every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Listen to me. Today, is the day of salvation. Here's how I want to say it to you. The way you see Jesus now, you say, well, he's just a good teacher. I don't know. Or he didn't exist. The way you see Jesus now will determine what he says to you then on that day. You realize we're all going to stand before him. Is he going to say to you, welcome, enter your eternal rest, my child, Or will he say to you, depart from me. I never knew you. You could lead a a small group and still hear that. You could do counseling. You could preach. You can do any number of things. If we jumped over to Matthew 7, you'll see where it says, they said, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? Go figure that out if you want to. But basically he's saying, you can do some incredible things and still be lost. That's how scary this is. He wants you to think, do you know him? Don't just assume you're in. You just might not be. Do you know him? Do you love him? Is your faith solely in him and him alone? But to do that, 
What he was preaching last week is you will have to strive and fight against your flesh that thinks you're not that bad to be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing. If you're here and you don't know him, come to Christ today. Come to Christ. And if you're here and you're one of those people that Satan just continually beats up on because of your past, because you didn't fit that category, like, look at you. You say you're a Christian. Look at you. Look at you. Look at you. Be encouraged today. Yeah, look at you. You fit the category of who Jesus came to save. Lost sinners, outcast, outsiders, broken. Those that the world might have labeled, there's no place for you because there's no place for you, people like you in the kingdom. He came to, and you can just say back to your enemy, say to your flesh and say to Satan, yep, I am a great sinner. That's why I have a great Savior, Savior. these two things go together. Oh God, thank you for your word. Thank you for not just dropping leaflets. Thank you for not just sending an angel to declare this message of hope. Thank you for sending your son to leave the glories of heaven and to take on flesh and come into our mess and experience everything that we experience and then do for us that what we could never do for ourselves. Keep your law perfectly and then offer up a perfect, sinless, righteous life in payment for sin so that we can be saved, accepted, adopted. Oh God, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for Jesus. And we thank you in his name, amen.